Hello and welcome to episode two of Three Shaved Heads. This is the multidisciplinary podcast for product development. Today, we're going to have some new topics. But before we start, let's kind of review where we were with the last podcast. So last month, we did a little pilot podcast, a little MVP, I think you probably called it, wouldn't you say, guys? Definitely an MVP. Definitely an MVP. And did you hear that? Did you hear how crystal clear my voice is right now? Uh, yes, I know. Um, so, Keith, do you want to tell everyone about your revelation? Yes, I've got a huge network switch, a 24-port network switch just under my desk with a huge fan on it, which I'm just so used to I don't hear it anymore, but apparently it could be heard very, very clearly on my, my track in the recording. So it's now turned off, and I'd imagine there's a few teenagers downstairs running around wondering why they can't connect to various things, but they'll just have to put up with it. Well, I mean, luckily, there was a very good filter in Ferrite, and it seemed to get rid of the loud hum on your audio very easily. So I'm quite pleased about that. And yeah, no, no one is any to the wiser, really. Excellent. But anyway, we've had some, since we've done the pilot, we've had quite a few changes at our end. So because we've had such warm uh, feedback, we've decided to go public. Um, not public in a kind of stock market sense, but we've gone on to Spotify, Apple, and Google, you can now search for us and find us and subscribe to our podcast. So I'm going to repeatedly say this throughout the podcast. Please subscribe. But anyway, beers. Beers is quite important. Guys, what are you drinking tonight? Go on, Sam, you go first. Uh, I've got I've got a cup of tea, actually. You've got a cup of tea? Yeah. I know it's disappointing, what? isn't it? It is a bit. you got sugar in it. No, no sugar. Um, mm. But I can give you my untapped rating if you like. <laughs> Well, yeah, go on. I'm not sure whether Untapped allows tea onto its uh, database, well, but hey. Because I made it, it's obviously a perfect five. Oh, I see. You like that, are you? Uh, well, yeah. I'm, but but what tea bag was it? Or was it loose tea? Did he lose loose tea? I didn't go loose tea. No, it's just a bog standard tea. Okay. Um, PG tips? Uh, no, not, not that bog standard. Okay. I have standards. Well, Come on. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. <laughs> well... It let's, sounds like uh, you're quite happy with your tea, so we'll let you get on with that. Let's segue nicely to Keith, who I imagine has a beer. I have a beer indeed. So there's a story behind my beer, uh, but if you're not familiar with UK politics, all you need to know is that a very silly man did a very silly thing. My beer is called uh, Barnard Castle Eye Test. Uh, if you're in the UK, you'll know exactly what that means. It's a um, very tasty beer. I'm probably going to – well, I've given it a five out of five on untapped. Probably, though, you can't really not give it full points because all the profits from this beer go towards making um, free hand sanitizer for the NHS and healthcare charities, which the uh, the brewery are currently doing. Yeah, that's <laughs> is it, good. It's not a hazy IPA, is it? Uh, no, it's not a hazy IPA. It is oh. a hazy Durham IPA. That's what it says <laughs> on the side of the can, which is genius. Amazing. <laughs> and it does taste good. You can confirm. Mm. I was just drinking a bit then. Definitely tasty. Good. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. I mean, I, I love the packaging on a lot of beers at the moment. So, uh, yeah, that's one that seems to have worked out. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm drinking something called Yes Sensei, which, uh, yeah, excuse the um, karate kid puns. It says it's a punchy APA. Is there such a thing as an APA? They didn't even know what an APA is. American Pale Ale? Yeah. Oh, ah, right. Yes. I should have known that. Um but yeah, if you're worried about food miles, this is not the beer for you. Unfortunately, it's from New Zealand, um, which is pretty far away. Um, and the other thing is, I guess the other thing is that drinking beer is, is a good thing to do. I don't know if you saw the news article this week um, that actually these, the manufacturers of Marmite are having problems because there isn't enough yeast. And they get yeast from the manufacturer of beer and beer sales mm. have gone down, mainly because of the pub shut, I guess. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm not contributing to that because I'm probably helping Vegemite. Yeah, you're supporting Vegemite. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry about that. But yeah, even so, I'm sure I'm making someone happy in some way. Okay, so uh, untapped. Oh, I'm actually I haven't drank mine yet. Yeah. Oh, it's all right. It's very hoppy. Very hoppy. I like hops. Yeah, it's quite strong as well. 
But yeah, anyway, that's quite a nice beer. Um, okay, so that bit's gonna get cut. <laughs> yeah, I think it probably. I don't will know be. why. <laughs> Depends Guys, how lazy I'm at editing. Look, before we continue, um, I've got a confession to make. Um, oh no, my hair's grown back. Oh. I'm not sure I can be in the podcast anymore. Have you got it in the ponytail now? No, not that. It's not growing that that much, but it's not shaved anymore. I'd say it's mm. it's scissor scissor trim. Well, I don't know what to say about that. Um, I mean, the lucky the good thing is that we can't see it, right? If you'd hadn't told us, we wouldn't have known. Yeah, so but that's I'm, just the kind of stand-up guy I am. I'm on a fresh grade one all over at the minute, but I think, Sam, as long as you continue to not have a beard, you must be shaving at least part of your head so you can uh, stay. I do have a bit of a beard going oh. on as well, if I'm honest. Well, Sam, I admire your transparency. We are a cross-discipline team here, and you've really stood up there. Excellent. Should we get on with the podcast? We, we should, yeah. So, okay, let's talk about last month's show. Um, yeah, so last month we talked a lot about the NHS app. Um, Sam, what's happened since? Uh, well, well, nothing, as far as I can tell. Um, there's There's been nothing in the news about it at all, um, apart from people asking where it is. Mm. Um, and I, oh, I suspect... I'm not going to harp on about this because I did a bit in the last show. I suspect they are currently reworking it to work with the Apple and uh, Google APIs. Well, that seems to be what uh, BBC News are reporting. So uh, when was it? Last week, I think it was Friday last week, uh, there was a news article talking about how they are reconsidering how they're um, creating that app. And it does look like they're going back to the Apple and Google uh, APIs. So, yeah, interesting. Um, and I guess some some of the things they called out in the article were the things that we talked about in the last podcast. So, uh, congratulations, Sam. I think you called that yeah. one out fast and early. Genuine consumer advice, right here. <laughs> and and Keith, I know you sent an article in the last few days, uh, a little bit of a follow up on that, really, comparing. Uh, our app with uh, the German, German app and other apps around the around the world. Uh, what was that saying? Yeah, so there's there's an interesting update on the BBC News yesterday. Um, you can you can go and read the details yourself. But a couple of things jumped out at me as quite interesting. Uh, they, they were interviewing a technology expert who, who lives on the Isle of Wight and obviously has um, a bit of an insight into how these things work. And a couple of the comments he came out with were along the lines of how um, how the government don't seem as prepared as they used to be a few weeks ago to commit to timelines as to when they're going to launch, um, which which is probably a very very familiar feeling to to those of us that work in in the digital and technology industry, as you know. But but you know on the on the positive side, they, uh, does, is this a sign that they're actually um, more interested in in the outcome rather than the output, um, and, and really you know not being too worried about the deadline. Um, and the other the other thing that was pointed out was how potentially that the early communication with early adopters hasn't been amazing. And actually as well, that you're probably interested in Graham um, signposting. And as, as, as the, um, the article describes it, a handholding within the app seems to have been a bit of an issue and, and sort of a lack of incentive to go into the app every single day to, to check it or to, to make an update. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I did, read a little bit about uh, the guy was saying he thought that most people who had the app had probably deleted it by now. I think probably because once you have it in there, um, you don't have to do much with it and you're kind of wondering, is it working? Mm. It sounds like the connection between any kind of action isn't very clear um, to those users, but uh, difficult to say without actually using it. But clearly there seems to be some kind of user experience issue uh, with that product or service. So yeah, maybe, maybe, hopefully they'll they'll fix those issues over time. Yeah, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That could have been a learning they they've discovered. They they've got that feedback and they work it into the next version. Mm. And I, and I, and the interesting slant from the government at the moment is they are calling it the cherry on the cake rather than the the main track and trace scheme, which is a very different uh, way of looking at this strategy now. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting way to describe it. Yeah. 
maybe mm. there'll be a follow-up podcast on that in uh, in three months time when it launches well i, I think yes there probably could be couldn't there and when, when we've actually got it in our hands and see what it's like yeah very interesting must track down a cherry flavored beer for that <laughs> yep other fruit beers are available <laughs> okay so, should we talk about this week's hot topic Yes, I think we should. Um, so let me remind uh, listeners who have been listening to us in the last episode. Um, yeah, so Sam raised something right at the end of that podcast. And actually, yeah, if you could, it's a good job you couldn't see me because my eyes had firmly rolled into the back of my head when you raised this. Um, but let's talk it. Let's talk about it. I think it's an interesting topic. Uh, so hot topic this week, should designers code? Yes. Um, it's... It's an argument I think that's been raging in our industry for well, for as long as software developers and designers have existed together. I guess I, I agree. It it does often come up. And what what made you think of that topic? I'm just interested in where it came from. Oh, it's just the the cliched topic, isn't it? Yeah, I guess <laughs> nothing more than that. Really, it's, it would be interesting to talk about it. I think. Um, I suspect we'll probably all have the same opinion and I suspect it will probably be quite disappointing for our listeners um, <laughs> that we're not going to rage and, and argue about it. But I guess we can talk the points through. Yeah, we set up some kind of big clickbait uh, headline and then we all agree on the, the outcome, which is a little disappointing for our users. But anyway, let's talk about what we think about this to kind of verbally go through uh, this hot topic. I mean, I, when I talked about my eyes rolling into the back of my head when you said it, and I, I think there is a, a sense from designers when they hear this, well, you should be able to code. Um, they kind of feel, well, I don't do this as a day-in, day-out job. It's a bit like asking someone who randomly fixes their car every five years to do it every week. Yeah, And it's, it's quite a big change um, to actually think that maybe they're good enough to do it uh, on on a more frequent basis. Yeah, I so I I I mean I, the, my my viewpoint is that um, it's part of the human condition to be able to design. Um, so coding is design, graphic design is design, user experience design is design, music is design. Having an idea of what you might want to turn your house extension into is design. Every every human designs. Um, so my. I guess for me, um, I think there's a generation um, that probably grew up at the time I grew up where computers got into schools and the first computers that I got my hands on, even being a BBC Micro, you had to, to an extent, write code to get it to actually do anything. So my, my whole experience right back to day dot of computers has been coding is just something that you do to get an outcome you need. You know, Eventually, I went into doing some design work but coding was always just something very closely related to computing for me and i can probably think that maybe younger people coming into the industry uh, that may not have had to ever write a line of code before just to get a computer to do something mm, yeah i'm i have uh, strong very vivid memories of uh, programming my spectrum when i was god what seven or eight years old long time ago um but yeah i think you're right you know i think coding is part of the fabric of what we do, I guess it's all about in terms of whether this is something we expect those roles to do. Um, and I guess there are views either way on that one. Well, I think my my problem here is is with the use of the word should. Um, and I only suggest that as a topic because it's the cliche topic. I think should designers code? Um, yeah, if they want to. Should designers want to code? Maybe if they want to, it's a, you know, you can reverse the question as well. Should, should coders design again? Yeah. Yeah. If they want to, I mean, yeah. Keith's already kind of argued the point that, that code is actually design. There's a lot of design work. It's not visual design. It's not UX design. Um, but I think really, and this is my disappointing uh, opinion for the um, listeners is that to build great software, you need great coders and great designers. And if there's someone who wants to do both and can, great. If not, that's why you've got a multidisciplinary team that does it. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I tend to, I tend to agree. I mean, I think uh, when I teach uh, UX and, and UI, and I, I talk about uh, responsive frameworks and talk about CSS and breakpoints, and we get into some of the technical detail around uh, web web coding, uh, and a little bit around app app coding as well, and the the fright on my students' faces sometimes. Yes, <laughs> it, I mean it, it can well, scare them quite a bit, and they, so I do get this question quite a bit. So don't don't, don't mistake my opinion for saying that someone should not want to better understand the constraints within which they might do their job Mm. i.e a designer on ios for example there's a bunch of human interface guidelines that must be followed or should be followed Um, and in the same way someone developing an app should understand that if it doesn't have a great user experience there's probably not much point doing it so wanting to better understand what makes those things happen um, is, is really important and key. And so if, if I was in your position, Graham, with your students, I'd be encouraging them to, to learn as much as they feel they need to about the constraints of their system. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, that's kind of what I say. I mean, I think um, it is part of the fabric of what we do. I think it is important to understand how these things are built um, I think you can compare and contrast with architects and builders. Do architects build houses? No, they don't. Normally, some may some may do, but um, uh, I think often they have a good understanding of how these materials come together and how they create a good architecture. So, so you have to understand the materials, and it's the same with code and design. You have to understand how the code works in order to create a great design. But I wanted to raise another thing is um, obviously there are different roles within UX mm. and, and design. So on, on one side, you get UX designers who will do a lot of research and they will focus mainly on the research side of design. Um, and therefore, in that case, maybe is it less important to code? And then on the other side, you've got UI where you may be focusing, uh, maybe working very closely uh, with a development team uh, and on the nuances of all those layouts and all those grid systems, therefore knowing in practice how these things work could become really crucial. Well, no, you're you're absolutely right, and the same applies to to um, developers. You know, there's thousands of different languages and, and thousands of different roles. Um, you know, if you're someone solely focusing on a data layer. Um, I guess you could make the argument that you need to work all the way up the stack and understand the, the the user experience to be able to build that data layer. But I wouldn't expect someone like that to necessarily need to understand um, how to research the best user experience for a screenflow, for example. Mm. Um, I think as well, um, it, as I would imagine... Um, as a designer is developing their own style and, um, you know, a lot, a lot of developing as is a designer is looking at other designers you, you admire, um, perhaps even a bit of art history, and you kind of get into an area where you, you feel comfortable and you like to work and you like to operate in. So for some, it might be the pure visual elements of, of doing things. Um, but, I, I mean, just to talk about me again as an example, when I, when I was doing web design, I can remember when I learned how to uh, set up a database, um, store some values in it, use PHP and MySQL um, calls to then directly change what was in a cascading style sheet. And it blew my mind because I could then do some really wacky stuff, completely pointless stuff. But I began to understand how code and a visual design could have a really intrinsic relationship with each other. Mm. Uh, but that was just my my line of thought. I just like to get into the, to the understanding of how things work and why they work and how you can fiddle with them and completely break them. Whereas another designer might be thinking, oh, I just want to make things look as amazing as they can. And that, that's where my skill set is. A, a few years ago, I remember uh, a guy called Matt Zarandi, who uh, at the time was working with AOL. And he did a presentation exactly on this topic, talking about should designers code. He was a designer, by the way, or he's a head of design. And he said, yes. Um, and I guess the rationale for his um, emphatic yes, was that a lot of the work he was doing was around CMS systems. It was around um, news articles. It was around content on uh, on on designs on on mobile web and and desktop web. Um, I guess if 
that was a finance system, so maybe it was a Monzo app, for example, we probably wouldn't be having the same discussion. So how do you feel about that? Would you agree that um, designing and coding a CMS system or something which has a, a strong presentational layer is very different to something where you know, it looks after your money, something like Monzo or something like uh, Starling app. Would you expect a designer to code and QA their own work, for example? No, I don't think it's different. I don't, I, I agree. I agree. I think, I think, um, I think whether you're designing or coding, you're, you're resolving problems, you're looking to create the best user experience and Make an improvement for the users that you're that you're working for, that your your target audience. So the skill set is broadly the same, but the subject matter can can vary wildly. I think the outcomes well, can can be very similar. I would I'd actually go further and argue that that line of thinking is what results in some truly terrible software. Mm. I've certainly been involved in in projects in the past, um, not necessarily for anyone I've I've been employed with, but um, where the questions come up, well, oh, do we need do we need design for this? And someone's gone, no, no, it's only a it's only a I don't know, insert label here in in this case, it's only a CRM. Do we need design that? And and you know, invariably, those are the the projects that result in pretty terrible software. Mm, yeah, I I think you can see that from both sides, right? You can see how if designers don't involve coders and coders don't involve designers, things can kind of fall flat. There's a, yeah. there's a really good, good quote from Alan Cooper, who um, actually, I didn't realize this for a, for some time, but Alan Cooper is the father of Visual Basic. So he was a, he created uh, a programming language, but he's now running his own design consultancy uh, called Cooper Design in America. And this is what he says about developers. He says, good developers are focused on solving challenging technical problems following good engineering practices and meeting deadlines, they are often uh, given incomplete, confusing, and sometimes contradictory instructions and are forced to make significant decisions about the user experience with little time or background, which I think underlines what you were saying earlier, Sam. Yeah, I mean, software isn't built by any one person. Um, mm. and, and building software is a series of collective decisions about about how to do something or how to construct something or how to build a journey. Um, and it, it can't be done without people to write code or people to think about the design. Um, I'm sure there are some, some you know, people who excel at, at both of those. Um, but, but, you know, the fact remains the skill set is what's needed. Whether designers should code to be able to fulfill the code part or coders should design to be able to fulfill the design part is, is neither here nor there mm. i mean that that quote itself is is really of its time and i'm not sure when that was that was written but it feels to me probably 80s uh, because it almost describes the need for um user experience design and product management in two sentences well, if you, I, I, yeah, I think, I think it was a time when there was less hybridization around roles. I, I don't think it was the 80s, but I think it was pretty much uh, 90s when that book came out. But but look at it now in the context of you know agile development and Scrum teams. Um, I would argue nowadays developers aren't given things. They're they there's a cross-functional team who's given a problem to solve, and the team needs to solve that problem together. I think that's true if you're if you work in the right place. I think <laughs> the more enlightened businesses have come on to realize that, that that is a very very good way to work um if it's relevant in that industry but there there are there are several that still need to go on that journey in my experience. Yeah, I mean I think um I think the other way of looking at this is um there will be a lot in the UX community who strongly believe that UX is founded in research alone and not in the execution. Um, now, I, I don't completely agree with that. I, I think I'm a little bit more, um, uh, I, think, I think understanding the code is important, but um, there is some validity in that. There is some validity in the fact that good research and good insights can create a great product. I mean, yeah, you 100% need research. Um, 
it's 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 a kind of time cost quality thing as well though right because if you set out to do all of these things as a single person it will take a a lot longer than if you have a team of people to do it for you which is why Mm. most organizations i believe construct a team of people to do this and you know you can you can pick and choose the the experts that you have in your team if you like um that's not to say it's not possible for one person to do all of these things you and can, it doesn't you can, you can absolutely you know, do, it, do it as one yeah. person but but then the other thing is is i, I forget the, the the famous quote about how many hours it takes to be good at something i mean it's something like twenty thousand hours i think to be good at any one thing so you know in terms of a real world business situation it's going to be far more effective to have one person coding one person designing because as time goes on, your coder will get better and better and better. And as time goes on, your designer should get better and better and better. And certainly if I spend more than a few years away from writing a line of code, it's really hard to remember what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly remember after finishing web design and trying to build a website um, a few years later, how on earth do I get a Photoshop to work these days after missing out on several iterations in their version history? It, it's, it's, you know, it, it's a specialist, um, a specialist role um you, you need to be doing it a lot of the time constantly and you you get better and better and that's where i think the the you know you can do it as one individual but you'll be a lot slower i think f- for me this comes down to a communication in that it, it is far easier to i think work with people where you can speak a little bit of their language Mm. Um, I've just seen so many conversations that are much smoother and more free flowing. If people understand a little bit about what the other person is, is working with in their head. Uh, and that's probably where this comes down for me. Yeah, I, 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 I do agree. I mean, I, I from the other perspective, I, I can say in my career, I have done some coding, uh, much to my sins. But the times when I've done it, would I want that stuff to go live? Absolutely not. Is it scalable? Absolutely not. Was it well marked up? Absolutely not. It was me messing around, playing around, and trying to understand how something is crafted in code, um, not really trying to do it to the best of, of coding practices. Uh, but um, that that was valuable for me and value for, valuable for my understanding. Um and I'm sure, uh, well, I know there are many developers who are doing the same for design. They are actively um, you, uh, picking up a, a copy of Sketch and and playing around with it and working with it. Um, so I think I think there's a there is a healthy crossover of some of these roles. Well, you've actually that's a good point to dwell on a little bit because um, I guess it won't come as a surprise to people that um, we've all worked together in the past. Um, and Graham, at one point in the past, I remember I did pick up Sketch uh, and completely redesigned an app we, we were did. working on. Yes. And I sort of presented it to you. And I went, oh, what do you think of this? And I think you're very polite. And yeah, but, but you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's the kind of example of, you know, I know this is rubbish, Graham, but I'm trying to teach myself a little bit of, of you know, what you guys do and the constraints yeah, and, you're working and you know what i've done the same thing I, when i when i worked at another company i was i actually had my own little css project in the background and i was showing to the developers what do you think is it any good um and trying to learn from that perspective but i've also developed some code where clearly the developers did feel put out probably in the same way that <laughs> suddenly i did when you presented your designs to me um and, and that's i think that's but i think that's kind of natural right in kind of cross-functional teams you are gonna, um, you are gonna kind of uh, share the load a little bit. Um, I can recall very clearly um, a project I worked on in another large internet company, um, where there was some JavaScript involved, and I wrote the JavaScript for it. This, is JavaScript something I I enjoy doing? No. Is it something I would see myself doing again? Not really. Um, but I did it. And it was part of the team trying to provide that function to get that, that service or that product out. And, and it worked. And it was really successful. So as a um, product owner slash product manager, I think I've got a, a, a fairly interesting angle on it. Um, having both coded and UXed um, earlier in my career, 
I, I really I agree with Sam's earlier statement that it comes down to communication. So um, I find you know, I've worked with other product managers and product owners where I've found it a lot easier than to have conversations with developers. Um, I can do them much faster. I can grasp some of the concepts more easily and then communicate that back in a slightly different way to wider stakeholders in the business. Um, and I guess it's similar with UX. I can I, I can understand reasons and decisions um, for, for certain choices um, in, when it comes to the visual design of products. Um, but along with that, you need to know where the boundaries are because you can really tread on people's toes. And and you've got yeah. to also recognize that, certainly for me, I stopped coding 10, 12 years ago. I stopped designing eight years ago. Things change, um, skills develop, new, new technologies come out, new approaches come out. And I, you have to be aware that you may not know all of them and you are speaking to some highly trained expert individuals. So it's about boundaries as well and knowing when to not tell a, code that their code should have been written in a certain way um when you think it that they've done it wrong it's you've got to approach mm. it very differently to that and I, I think this does come back to trust right if you're working with other people you want to have a, a good piece of trust in in place so that you feel that you can dabble in each other's areas without kind of stepping on each other's toes yeah definitely and just think just listening to you talking about javascript then i, I was in a role um not so long ago where i was in the unenviable position of using um a very very cool bit of software um but it, it what it did is allow me to run um javascript directly on the live production site mm. which was immensely nerve-wracking and dangerous but the big but there was when i got the code right i could design and launch a test by manipulating page elements through the dom in javascript get results really really quickly um, on an A-B test, uh, just for writing 10, 15, 20 lines of JavaScript. Um, obviously, the downside is that you can you can make things very, very wrong very, very quickly. Um, <laughs> so you need to kind of know what you're doing, and it's it's not a comfortable place to be in. Um, but, but there is that benefit that you can, in some situations, uh, if your engineering team are too busy on the working on the backlog, your UX team might be out doing some some testing. If you've got a really quick idea, you want to try get some data to do it, particularly on a high traffic website, you can get that out there very, very quickly, learn, turn it straight off again, and then you can inform your next bit of work with some real data. Mm. I, I think I think the, the the thing that I picked up on there was the the, the blame game around when things go wrong. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's quite clear that if a designer or, or someone who doesn't normally do code and that thing falls over. That thing dies a death um, and causes significant user problems, maybe a PR disaster. Well, the designer did the coding. How do you, how do you, how does a, a company recognize that maybe that wasn't the best solution? Well, I mean, that's 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 just well, that goes into a whole different ball game, right? That's like structure of company management. Um, you know how hierarchical is it? I think. <sighs> I think I fall firmly into the camp of teams build software mm. and, you know, teams ship software. And, you know, I think there needs to be, it, it depends on, I guess it's, it goes back to my very original point. It just depends on the constraints of your system. And um, by system, I mean the environment in which you're running this software. Um, if there's a potential for something to go, go badly wrong, then the team needs to spot that before it happens. Mm. Um, or, or when it does happen, you know, uh, agree that, okay, well, you know, let's figure out why this happened. Let's make sure that doesn't happen again. Mm. Um, and I, and I, I, guess, you know, I guess really we're talking about yeah, the difference between waterfall working environments and more agile hybrid teams working together. Maybe, I don't know. But but I guess what I'm saying, and, and I just to be really clear, I don't want to pass judgment here on how various companies decide to set up their management and hierarchy but i think you do get into a problem with with doing what keith just suggested as a as a non-coder shipping straight to production if the environment you're in is set up such that another team is held entirely accountable for that platform um that that becomes very difficult then because yeah. the 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 thing goes down something happens People go to the team that's that's got accountability for it, and they say, "Oh, well, no idea what what that is." 
So again, it's a constraints of system thing, but but where the system is the environment within which you're building that software. Um, is it inherently good or bad that that can be done? I think it's good. I think it speaks to the kind of iterate, um, move fast, break stuff. But, you know, that, that phrase has never been intended to be the be all and end all. I certainly wouldn't want a system like that if I was in charge of... Uh, Barclays Bank, for example, Absolutely. other banks are available. <laughs> and I, um, I, I think um, you're right. Some software is is uh, shipped by teams, and key part of those teams are QA and testing. Um, if I think back right to the start of my career, I remember being told one day when I came into work that everything I did had to be tested by someone else, and I was incredibly offended. I thought, what, 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 what do you mean? Why would I put something live that that wasn't working because when I put stuff live, I check that it works. And if it doesn't work, I fix it. Well, why does someone else need to, to look at it for me? I know what I'm doing. That was my attitude and it, it felt tough, but things change, you know, 20 years on, um, the internet websites, they're, they're a massive part of business. Um, the majority of people online banking, as you say. So now if I walked into to a role in a new place and there were no testing test teams or QA, um, capability i'd be thinking no i'm off (laughs) well i guess that's the point and that that kind of echoes back to your previous uh story where you were editing javascript on a live site i think code these days goes through a lot of of rigor before it gets pushed live in most cases and that doesn't necessarily mean a, a dedicated qa team looks at it but developers work together uh, so you know they'll pair program or they'll um, check code into to Git and have it code reviewed. And quite often these these phases are, are mandated just by the process and the process that's been designed by those developers because they want people to check their work. They know things are better when they're looked over. And a system like you suggested previously sort of bypasses all of that. Yeah. Um, and and you know that that can cause problems in a in a different way and so to go back to our kind of hot topic if you like should designers be able to deploy code on systems like that i don't know it's a fine line um it really depends what the software is there there is a philosophical side to this debate though i mean um, you know the general feeling is that code is ubiquitous therefore everyone should understand code and you know raspberry pi and all those sorts of ventures are instilling that instilling that in our culture but the the opposing view is actually well everything that is coded will become easier to code therefore there might be design applications that generate code that are actually scalable and therefore um, reusable etc what are your thoughts on that, guys? So there's there's a really interesting blog article I, I came across on LinkedIn, I think within the last couple of weeks, by a developer called Joe Morgan. And he was picking up on the fact how coding for kids and things like Scratch are becoming increasingly popular and well-promoted to tackle those problems of not, you know, maybe in the future people don't understand how to write code because well, then what are we going to do? How are we going to build software? Um, but he he takes almost an opposite view that actually we shouldn't be just I think to use his words we shouldn't be just teaching kids syntax we should be teaching them how to solve problems creatively. So it's great learning how to take picking up a book, looking at a Scratch program, and knowing what to write to get something to do something. But you're almost focusing on the learning of the the technicality of it whereas his argument is that actually we should step back from that and look more holistically at problem solving skills and i think naturally some people would go down the visual design ux route some people might then get more more interested in the programming and how does it work and how can i fix it and what does code do um side of things and at the end like i said at the start but both of those skill sets are ultimately designing writing code is 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 problem solving generally i think quite often some of these um articles and i've I've read quite a few in preparation for this they they do tend to trivialize the coding development process um it's it it can be really quite complicated i mean i think we've touched on maybe some of the more simple aspects in this 
podcast where we talk about JavaScript and CSS and things like that. But you know, as a as a developer, you could be tasked with processing. I don't know. I'm making this up on the spot. Ten thousand records in in under a uh, you know half a second. And you have to build a system that does that in what is essentially a, a foreign language. Mm. It, it is a complete language. It has all of the, you know, the hallmarks of another language, French or German I, or Spanish. And I, th- I think, again, I think there are some massive trade-offs. Sorry, Sam. Um, the, the trade-off, I remember many times in my career, you've had a number of APIs on one screen that the user sees. And if there are more than five or there's more than three, the thing breaks, falls over, just can't handle it. So you have to think carefully about how you adapt that user experience to kind of work with what you've got available. Yeah, that's true. But I guess my point was more that as complicated as as coding is, that requires a, a very certain skill set, a very particular type of, of skill set. But equally, so does everything in in the UX world, in the design field, and you know the research. And it's I, I guess all I'm saying is it's very unusual, I think, for one person to be interested in both aspects adequately to be excellent at both of them. Hmm. So that doesn't that doesn't mean should designers code no. It just means should we expect designers to be excellent coders? No, I don't think we should expect that. Uh, I wondered when the the word unicorn would come up. Who said unicorn? <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. You know, I think um, I, of course, you know, there are people within product development uh, circles who do have interest in all those aspects, but are they equally good all those areas? It's a very different question. Well, like, but I guess you need people like that as well, though, because you need people to be able to kind of blur the boundaries. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, look, I, we probably need to wrap up because we've been sort of rambling on for about 40 minutes now. But <laughs> I guess that that's my kind of conclusion is, you know, should designers code? If you want to. Should coders yeah. design? Yeah. I if think this to. is really interestingly represented in the little uh, Twitter um, survey we did. We've had complete statistical um, relevance um, because we had a, a, a complete sort of set of 10 votes to gather our data from. And the split is 60% say yes, so just yes, designers should be able to code. 40% say no, not really. I think that's close enough to a 50-50 split to support what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know what? I mean, I, I, I tend to agree. I think if, you, if you're interested, you want to do it, and you think you can make things happen with your coding skills as a designer, do it. And some businesses will really gravitate to you, to you, especially if they are smaller startups. That's where they need people with more than one skill. Or sometimes, I think even Apple um, doesn't hire UX designers unless they have at least a few skills. Um, so these are some of the things that some businesses are already thinking about. I guess I guess what I would say is, you know, set set your expectations, though. If you have spent years of your life becoming fantastic at designing things, you need to be prepared to at least spend years of your life becoming an excellent coder if you want mm-hmm. to say that you do both. And I'm not saying that people have to, but don't underestimate. And this go, this is both sides, really. Don't underestimate how difficult it is to do the other thing. Um, you can learn aspects of it, and you can learn a whole bunch of skills that make your your jobs easier and communicating with those other people easier. But I think where people fall down is. Um, they, I don't know, they go and do a, a crash course for a couple of months and then they proclaim themselves to be a designer or a coder. And that, I think, is where the danger comes. Uh, it's like, great, you've got those skills. That's that's really good and that'll help in a lot of ways. But please, you know, appreciate and understand the importance of the other area that you've 
you know, started to dabble in. And if you say. enjoy both, but your skills are distinctly lower than average in both at the same time, you can always become a product owner like me. <laughs> I think that's a bit harsh, Keith. I think that's... <laughs> I think there's a... Yeah, I'm I mean, selling yourself. <laughs> there are lots of strategic and business things to think about, especially op- operational elements uh, with product management, which... Uh, I, I yeah I, that's something I definitely don't want to get into um one thing I was just going to add in at the end I this this kind of came to me when uh, the topic came up I remember going for an interview uh, for a UX designer many years ago for a large internet-based company um and the final test in the interviews and I think I went through about four or five rounds um was a JavaScript uh test which kind of surprised me because it wasn't in the job spec. Um, and I, of course I failed it. And um, it's always stuck in my mind. It's like, should I know JavaScript? Um, and it's always kind of well, bothered me a little bit. I think that speaks to, and uh, yeah, I'll just say this because it, it, it is in the industry. I think that speaks to, there's a certain aspect of uh, developers, expect someone else to be able to do what they can do. I've definitely seen that. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's what you experienced here, but I've definitely seen companies that it tends to be the smaller companies actually, um, where there's maybe just one person in charge of recruitment and the the attitude is, well, of course there's a JavaScript test. Everyone can Mm. do JavaScript, right? Why are you even applying if you can't do JavaScript? (laughs) Uh, I think that's wrong, and I think that that needs to be challenged wherever it's kind of seen. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe I, that's what you came up against. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the irony was I have done JavaScript. I just didn't expect to do it for that interview, um, which was a bit of bit of a shock at the time. But hey, you know, we live and we learn. Um, okay. It's a bit like it's a bit like going for a job at uh, I don't know. Um, Tesco's, and then the last question is, oh, and uh, can you answer this in French? <laughs> so it's it's like well maybe there'll be some french customers that i need to work with but it's unlikely that i'll ever need to do that yeah i, I don't, I don't think Sainsbury's are in france are they i mean tesco's used to be i don't know there's i'm really trying to pull some thin <laughs> thread, strands there really well, look, there's a terrible analogy to end on <laughs> well, maybe we should always try and end on a terrible analogy but but anyway, I think we've got a, a kind of a yes, but a marginal yes, isn't it? For well, it's a yes, if throw. you want to. Yeah, yeah, it's a kind of yeah. I mean, I yeah, absolutely. I, I think we should. I think we should. I'm mean, sure we dabble, um, but I don't think it's it's certainly the, the the key skill that we should be known for. I mean, certainly don't don't learn to code at the expense of the other skills you need for design. Well, unless you want to change jobs and roles but well, yeah uh, that's, that's a they do game. exactly yeah um yeah. And, and the same applies again the other way around yeah. if you're and, a developer saying should i learn to design it and yeah, i'm conscious I'm, I'm, I'm conscious there's this term of uh what do they call it continuous learning in our careers and going against that is the fact that we label everyone with a role title <laughs> and that causes a bit of attention. So if you are a designer, you feel that you've always got to invest in your career as a designer. Yet um, there are plenty of people who manage to do multiple things within their own career. Yeah. I think we should take a, um, a leaf out of the book of the chap who invented the internet, uh, who famously calls himself a software developer. Does he really? Yeah. <laughs> Is that a bad thing? Well, no, no, no. I just mean I, he 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 literally invented the internet. Oh, fair. Um, and he's modest enough to simply call himself a software developer. Oh, what, Tim? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course, everyone knows Tim, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> right. Okay. Let's wrap. Let's wrap up, guys. And um, so, just a reminder: please subscribe. We are on iTunes, Spotify. And what's the other one? Oh, Google. Yes, Google. Um, before we go, we've got some rapid fire questions. We've had a few questions from our listeners. Thank you for them. Some of them are anonymous. Some of them are not. 
Um, we're going to rattle through them a little bit quickly. Um, Keith, do you want to go through them? I will. Right. So first up, uh, we have an anonymous question, which is, in your experiences, what are some of the best ways to get internal stakeholders to truly understand user-centered design and the importance of learning, discovery, and talking to the all-important user? God. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a big topic. Um, Yeah. I I mean, I don't, I kind of think that deserves a whole episode. What do you think, guys? I think it does. Um, I think the short version, though, actually touches on a lot of what we've talked about today, which is Mm. communication um, and empathy and understanding um, and being really good at, at, you know, technically translating if you need to or um, explaining what you need to and and reading people as well. I think that's an underestimated skill. Um, You know, understand how what you're saying is going down so that you can change it if it's not going the way that you think it needs to go. Um, but yeah, this is, this is, this is a deep, deep topic, which we could definitely uh, cover. But for me, the short answer is if you've got no time, no money, no budget, paper prototyping, it, it, it's where well, several times for me, you can, you can conduct very rapidly a bit of user-centered research, mm. uh, improve a design, do it with virtually no budget, and then you've got some structured research and some data resulting from that indicating an improvement that articulates almost the whole, well, I, I do it at a service here, I shouldn't say it, but almost the whole user-centered design process very rapidly, and that can start to open conversations for you. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess my short answer would be... Um, a lot of people can do discovery in design, but not many people can sell it. And I think you have to sell discovery into a business and get them to understand the value. And that's that's really hard. Um, but we can talk more about that in a future episode. Excellent. Right. Let's get more rapid with our rapid fire questions. Second question. Again, another anonymous one. Do you think there is a declining industry trend regarding the discovery phase and talking to the user? So kind of related to the early question, but slightly different twist on it. Uh, yeah, and I think we will expand that on that in another episode as well. But no, it's my flat out answer. I think now businesses are more involved in the discovery process. I think they they are maturing around UX um, in a big way right now. So UX is ceasing to become less of a service that you get a consultant in to do it. And it's now part of the fabric of individual businesses. And I think that's the big change going on. The step further is that discovery and research and insight is becoming even more uh, critical to those uh, businesses to thrive. Excellent. Number three, the third and final anonymous question this evening. With so many examples of good design out there now in app and web design, are companies becoming complacent where they're choosing to copy and paste instead of research and invent? Well, I mean, yeah. Is it complacent or is it just about uh, the amount of time they have? Um, I think you can make decisions based on the amount of available time you have uh, and learn from it. Um, There's nothing wrong with launching earlier than you expected and seeing what happens and then evolving over time. So that's that's a very different style of UX than perhaps traditionally we used to do. used to be a lot about upfront UX and now we're seeing more of a kind of real-time monitoring of user experience and, and checking out uh, new fixes and changes on a weekly basis. I so, think I'd just add, just add one thing on that. It's it, the, the kind of copy-paste approach. Not everything needs to reinvent the wheel. And actually, quite often, and, and a lot of the boring, um, quote-unquote, boring software, it's better if it just works like you're used to. Uh, so do, is that companies being complacent or actually just being yeah, pretty good? Absolutely great. I, I read a book recently called uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Uh, it's a great read. Um, and actually, one, one, it's about innovation and you know startups going from nothing to something. Uh, one of the points he made in the book was actually uh, if your if your innovation if your product is going to be a success, then it needs to be at least twenty percent better or cheaper than what 
other alternatives there are out there. So as long as your paste is at least 20% better than your copy, then I think it's a legitimate. I don't, I don't see anything wrong in copy and pasting as long as you're making a better paste. Mm, agreed. Agreed. Right. Next question is from Sophie. Sophie says, I'd like to know more about your best and worst experiences of working with others across dev, product, UX disciplines and what working arrangements you think work best. (laughs) I once worked with this really terrible uh, head of UX and this really (laughs) terrible product owner. I can't imagine. I can't tell you how bad. They didn't have any hair, did they? Uh, no, both shaved, actually. Yeah, okay. Both shaved. Oh, God, they're the <laughs> worst. <laughs> no, come on, serious answers. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, Sophie, this is a fantastic question. I think we're going to put this into a whole episode again. Um, and actually, I think this one should be the next one we do. But, yeah, um, clearly there's going to be a lot of talk around Agile, um, pods and multi-fasted uh, teams, and also waterfall, uh, very traditional waterfall environments. Um, and how they all interact with each other, but yeah, I think there's a there's a lot uh, there's a lot of rope there for us to talk about. Yeah, I agree. I I think just to answer very quickly, um, I think back to the first time I walked into my first job in 1997, working on a website. Um, at that point in time, we we the team the digital team was set up so generally on any bit of work you had a designer a developer and an editor, as in someone to write the nice words. And that three-way combination we, we did on literally everything. And we, we if we had a particular longer-term project to work on, we would sit together and we would work through it as a team. Um, fast forward 20 years, I've gone through moving away from that to a very, very sort of waterfall-y um, stage gate processes. And then as Agile sort of got more and more popular more recently, it feels like we're going back to how things were in the in the late 90s when all the different skill sets sit together and work as a team to to focus on on the outcome and, and that to me just always seems to work work the best hmm. right two more questions both of these are from Yao. Uh, so Yao asks how could we stay productive and creative during lockdown well i, I mean i I tend to believe that lockdown and these kind of adverse situations bring out the best in us uh, creatively. So I think it's already happening. I think you're seeing lots of really online tools that are probably already there. Some of them we knew about, but we didn't really use before. Things like uh, Mural and um, uh, Miro, um, Zoom, Loom, all of these different tools are there now um, to make our lives a little bit easier um but i know that was it's more about the productive side of working in a lockdown the creative side i think that's a more interesting one because i think um yeah it's it's tough uh, and without getting into people's inner psychology on how they stay remain creative um i think it does some of that does come back to interacting with other people um allowing them to bounce off their ideas with other people and trigger new thoughts that's definitely part of the creative process and it is difficult to do that during a lockdown when you're in isolation but hopefully with some of those productivity tools you can embark on those um on those scenarios i think it's it's a big mind shift for a lot of us uh working on products right now um where we used to just get used to we were kind of uh, almost uh, yeah used to being around each other in offices we took it for granted put it that way um and now we don't have that and it was we've seen that see it now as a luxury that we were in an office together um so i think there is some adjustment going along but i think the tools are leading the way um and hopefully um some of our habits will change over time i think for me i found the extra time i've had not commuting and things has meant that i've started reading books again mm. and that's been amazing I think what you could do is uh, find two of your kind of good friends in the industry and set up a podcast. Um, you could. Don't gives say you, that. Gives you Don't a lot say of that. things they, to do. They might be better than <laughs> us. <laughs> it almost certainly would be. Let's be honest. <laughs> Final question then. What's your view on the trends of AI, AR, VR? Graham, I can't believe you. I now know why you expected me to ask these questions because you knew that'd be at the bottom of my can of beer and trying to read that sentence out is actually quite challenging at the minute. Yeah. What's your view on the trends of AI, 
AR, VR in UX design and design psychology. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I know Sam, you'll have some interesting thoughts on that. I'm sure. Um, in terms of UX, um, God, it's a difficult one. I, I don't think I know enough about it, but I, I know a little bit about AI, and I know um, there are definitely specialists within AI that are working on it, and um, and same for VR um, and augmented reality as well. Um, I suppose they are new seeds. We don't really know where they're going to be used, where they're going to be valuable, where they're going to really make a big difference for companies and for users. Um, so we're learning about them. And that, that's what's quite exciting about these new uh, technologies is that we are learning about them as we put them out there uh, for users to use. Um, and I'm, I've no, no doubt that there are some really great new um, research methodologies that we're using uh, to understand and capture that information around how people interact with them. Um, but the, yes, I think there is some deep design psychology in some of those things. Um, and I don't know whether culturally we understand how to interact with those technologies just yet. Um, we're kind of a little bit, find them a little bit foreign, a little bit odd. Um, so at some point there's going to be a point where they they do um, uh, take hold and we just don't know which um, experiences within those technologies are really going to work? I guess I'd split the answer into two, really. Um, assuming uh, by AI, you mean artificial intelligence. Um, and I kind of take that to mean things like machine learning. Um, mm. I think that has a lot of applications and, and it's being, I would say, widely used almost everywhere already. Um, I think, you know, People tend to shout about the exciting applications of it, uh, but there's a lot of boring applications of that technology. Um, and so, I, you know, I definitely would spend some time reading up on that and, and getting familiar with it. Um, but again, it's it's a very emerging field. So things change all the time. And frankly, this stuff is, is complicated. It's complex. Um, AR, VR, I've yet to see a consumer product uh what, what's the word it's it's being used a lot in games mm. yeah i've yet to see an application of it outside of games where i've thought wow that's that's a better experience than could have been done without those technologies Aren't they using um, it with surgery um, in hospitals for training surgeons and things? That's quite interesting. Yeah, maybe. I don't. I don't know. I've not seen that use case. But what I do see most of the time is gimmicks, and mm. you know, it feels like it's a technology that's waiting, uh, and one day it'll be awesome and it'll be brilliant and and it will be the best way of doing things. Are we there yet? I don't know. There've been some pretty high profile products uh consumer products like google glass for example um that that have stopped that have shut down that have not continued um so i don't think it's gone away but i i'm kind of yeah i'd 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 hold out yeah is i guess it's a kind of wait and see message um i recall vividly uh sometime early in my career vrml do you remember that mm. yeah what happened to that Pass. It just died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think that was way too early. It was uh, had some kind of demos and people kind of went wow about it. It never really took hold. I think it was just a little bit too early uh, to be adopted. But I, I'm pretty confident AI will. Um, it, well, it already is with Alexa and, and Google Assistant, etc. The augmented reality is, I think, is going to be really powerful for businesses who do uh, maybe research or maybe um, I've heard something about forklift truck drivers using, is it AI or uh, um, augmented reality to control forklifts in uh, workshops. Um, so they're not in dangerous way and they can control them remotely. So there is some interesting usages going on, um, but yeah, a bit of a wait and see. Well, if, you, if you want to really, uh, relevant example of of ai right now and to a degree this is not really ar or vr but it's being shown on a tv screen check out the um, amazon warehouse implementation of covid19 social distancing 
they basically have cameras and um, real-time uh, AI, if you like, analyzing how close people are. And these are shown on, on big screens that people can see as they're walking along. And if they get too close to someone, uh, the, the sort of there's a ring around them and it goes red and they go. Eh. Um, no way. So I'm going to so, reserve. I'm going to. I'm going to um, not answer the question. I I did my uh, dissertation in augmented reality, um, and I would argue that it's firmly already with us. And I think it depends on what your definition. If you really think of the meaning of the term augmented reality, what 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 uh, things have we got already that are over and above the human condition without technology? So oh, I would say Facebook has been around since 2007, 2008. So right now I can pick up a device and I can see what my network of friends are thinking. I see that as a form of augmented reality. Do you? I do. Because when I... I pick up Facebook, all I see is adverts for craft beer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's because I haven't got any friends. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in- interesting thought there. I think I think you're right to kind of push the envelope on that uh, that uh, term there. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, in conclusion, uh, future topics about all questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did a terrible job of answering that. But anyway, I think it may come up again in a future episode. But um, cool. I think we're done. We did try to aim to keep this below uh, 40 minutes and we failed. So, maybe next episode we'll, we'll uh, achieve that great, uh, great height. Um, just to kind of wrap up, uh, again, Please subscribe. Uh, We are on Spotify, iTunes, and Google. And hopefully we'll be back in another month's time. So until then, see you later. Bye. Cheers.